0: Section 14 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillam. Section 14. August 8th to 20th, 1915. August 8th. Rather a stormy day, Not much shelling on W. Beach. One can see plainly through glasses where the new landing has taken place. Hospital ships, transports, destroyers, and three battleships are off there. Rumor hath it that the landing was successful, and that they are advancing across the peninsula. Heavy firing goes on all day from batteries on shore and warships on sea, answered but feebly by Turkish batteries, which, however, do not fail to pay their usual unwelcome attention to W. Beach. A Turkish battleship on the way down here to support land forces was sunk today by one of our submarines, which is a great event. Heavy artillery fire goes on tonight on our left. August 9th. Usual shelling and some nasty ones amongst them. Ride up the gully and have a good gallop on a new little horse with Williams. Afternoon. Can see new landing through glasses. Gorse there seems on fire. Transport's very busy going to and fro on horizon. Ride up the gully along the top road at night with Cook, and have a chat with a few Irish Royal Army Medical Corps pals. Artillery duels on our front all day. Hear that in addition to Turkish battleship being sunk, also Turkish gunboat and empty transport. Submarine also open fire on Turkish battalions marching on shore, our submarine commanders are some lads. Heavy firing from battleships goes on all night up north. Good rumors come in from time to time that the new landing forces have captured the hills in front of them and Anafarta, and are overlooking the straits the other side. If this is so, then this show will be over in a few weeks. August 10th, very quiet on this front, but a little shelling as usual onto W. Beach. One up the gully in the afternoon. Brigade still in rest there. Shells come over to gully beach. Cruiser firing up coast again. Turks attack at 8 p.m. and again at 11.30 p.m. August 11th. Slight intermittent shelling on beaches and roads from Turks all day. Afternoon. French battleship Saint-Louis takes up position off our part of the coast. But before she fires, Turkish batteries open fire on her AND ONE SHELL HITS HER, AND THROUGH GLASSES I SEE SOMETHING CATCHING FIRE AND MEN RUNNING, FIRE EXTINGUISHED, BATTLESHIP MANEUVERS FOR FRESH POSITION, AND, HAVING TAKEN IT UP, FIRES WITH ALL HER SIX-INCH GUNS ON WEST OF ACHIBABA, ALL THE WHILE HEAVY FIGHTING IS GOING ON ON OUR RIGHT BY FRENCH. NEW LANDING HAS NOW LINKED HANDS WITH ANZAC, AND IS THREE AND A HALF MILES INLAND. Our troops at the new landing are not moving as fast as was at first expected, but reports are that Kitchener's army are fighting magnificently. The Indian brigade, unfortunately, had to give ground last night, but not of much consequence. I semaphore a message from the beach to MacArthur on a submarine, and submarine smartly picks it up and acknowledges. It is from a lady friend, from whom I have just received a letter, to a friend of MacArthur's. On the way back a shell comes near, goes right through the roof of the Deputy Assistant Quartermaster General's office as I was passing, and penetrates the earth wall on far side while Deputy Assistant Quartermaster General is writing at his desk. It did not explode, and he was most fortunately unhurt. Afterwards he said that he dropped his pencil with surprise. August 12th. A fairly quiet day. Rode with Hislop to the gully hardly any shelling on W Beach, and what shells did come over it were only poop squeaks, the majority not bursting. I suppose the Turks are taking the artillery away from here two positions against our men at Suvla, aeroplanes buzzing about as usual this end, and one of the E-type submarines comes down from the Straits, but the Navy keeps things dark, and since the last submarine stunt we have heard nothing.' "'Destroyers off W. Coast find a target on West Ridge of the Hill. Finley Smith comes to dinner. "'August 18th. "'Very hot and a calm sea. "'Not much shelling, but a few poop squeaks fall in supply depot. "'One man wounded. "'Shelling seems to be dying away. "'Road to the gully to Cregan. "'On duty at depot in the afternoon. "'Fighting last night in center and again this morning.' noticed very big explosions in Turkish trenches on their right, throwing earth and smoke quite three hundred feet. On inquiry, found that they were our trench mortars at work, throwing one hundred-pound shells. That will shake things up a bit. Very quiet night. August 14th. On duty at depot at six a.m. Very quiet, no shelling. Wonderfully quiet altogether now. Hardly a rifle shot, rode up to the gully beach and then rode out with matthias to pink farm and walked up the trench to brigade headquarters hardly a shell and only a few bullets what is happening anyway it is nice for us and it is a relief to be able to ride about in safety found way at headquarters and also saw thompson once more was very glad to see him rode with way back to the gully passing old butler asleep under a tree Told him that a shell would soon pitch on his tummy, to which he replied, "It is all right. The Turks think I am a mule." Call on Munster Fusiliers beyond Gully Beach in dugouts on cliff, halfway to Shrapnel Point, and have tea with Geddes and Nightingale. We passed General Delisle superintending the building of a new pier off Gully Beach. Have a nice canter home. After dinner, a Turkish four-gun battery on Asiatic side fires over a salvo of high explosives, followed by another and another in quick succession. It was a surprise to us, but did not last long, as our friends the monitors got on to them, on which I suppose they limbered up and bolted. I hope they will not do it in the middle of the night. The shells burst in the Arabs' camp beyond the aerodrome, causing them to clear, making a row like a panic-stricken poultry-yard no news from the north ten thirty p m turkish battery at yenisehire again starts firing salvos very rapidly and shells four at a time come over in succession shells almost reach w beach and anticipating their arrival near us phillips and i curse and have to get up and leave our tent and go to dugout suddenly a great flash over the sky behind rabbit island is noticed and shortly afterwards a great bursting flame behind Yenisehire, a very awe-inspiring sight. After quite a pause, there follows a great peal of thunder rumbling on, which ends with a great crash. This happens once or twice when the Turkish battery shuts up. It is the monitor behind Rabbit Island firing its great gun. The whole incident was like a few naughty boys throwing stones at a house, the owner of which, telephones to the police, the monitor behind Rabbit Island, who, without delay, take effective measures to stop the nuisance. It was really nothing more than a nuisance, and gained no military advantage for the Turk. August 15th. A very windy day. Almost a Gallipoli gale blowing down land, and, in consequence, dust storms start as usual. Two guns on Achi start firing towards our tents, why lord knows for there is nothing here to fire at but our tents and those can't be seen by them they do no harm but are a beastly nuisance as we keep on having to duck the wind is so strong that we do not hear them coming till they are right on to us after lunch i ride along the top road with carver and dipping down onto gully beach ride up the gully a little way and turn off to the left into a ravine where we leave our horses Climbing up the cliffs, we call at the mess of Major Gibbon's Battery, where tea is awaiting in a delightful summer house, surrounded with rocks and shrubbery. Duff is there, and Monroe too. The Battery is in position a few yards away, in an artfully hidden spot, never as yet having been discovered by the enemy. Out to sea, a small cruiser is in action, firing on a target on the left of Achi Baba, a Turkish battery on the extreme right is in action against her, recording a few hits without causing much damage, but making it necessary for the cruiser to maneuver constantly for a fresh position. Heavy firing occurs in the night, and the enemy strongly attack the Anzacs with no success. August 16th. Having been invited to breakfast with the Hampshires, who are up the line, I ride up to the Nullah in front of Pink Farm and leave my horse there, where he has given his breakfast. On arrival at the brigade headquarters at the end of the Long Trench, or the Mule Track as we now call it, I am given a guide to the Royal Scots, who, however, has difficulty in finding the battalion headquarters. We wander about a while before we reach our destination, reminding me of an endeavor to thread away through Hampton Court Maze. Up one long, winding trench, my guide puzzles me somewhat by the remark, B-trench, sir, but not a bee line." At first I am puzzled as to what he is driving at, but gradually it dawns on me that he is cracking, with difficulty, an obtuse Scottish joke, occasioned by the long, winding walk up the trench, which I notice is called B-communication trench. Battalion headquarters found at last... I have an excellent breakfast of hot cocoa sardines bread and jam and at the end of the meal I am taken up to do a tour of the line first we make a visit to the battalion headquarters of the essex where I see algie wood and colonel rice then I am shown the cookhouse of the hampshires owing to a curiously small and deep ravine it has not been found necessary to dig trenches here instead Communication trenches lead off from the small nullah, only a hundred and fifty yards away from our front line, in five different directions, like streets leading off from a circus. We pass up that part of the communication trench leading to the line which the Hampshires are holding. On arrival here, I am greeted with a wave of sickening odor, a blend of decaying bodies and chloride of lime. The scene in the first-line trench is alive with interest. There, officers and men are on the alert. Every four yards, men are standing on the fire steps, looking out through periscopes held in their hands or fixed to rifles. Others are cleaning up the floors or sides of the trench, as the parlor maid would do the room of a house. Others are improving parapets, leveling the sides and floors of the trench. A few are still at breakfast, one i noticed consisting of two fried eggs a piece of steak bread and honey and hot tea i am taken up a sap by one of the officers on duty in the front line a cheery young man named moore who has recently won the victoria cross at the sap head looking through a periscope i see not fifty yards away in front a sap head jutting out from a turkish trench turning the periscope round from left to right I see a sight which fills me with sorrow. I see lying in all postures, some alone, some in groups of three to six, the dead bodies of brave British tommies who a fortnight ago were alive and well, merry and bright, enjoying the bathing off Gully Beach. They had lost their lives in the battle of August sixth and had never even had the satisfaction of reaching Turkish territory. After the battle, our positions in the H trenches, as this part of the line is termed, remained unchanged from what they were before, but hundreds of brave men had gone forth from there never to return, and I am afraid few became prisoners. The end of the sap in which I am standing is protected from enemy bombs by a roof of wire netting. A drain pipe penetrates the earth at the end of the sap with its mouth filled by a rolled-up, empty sandbag. For my benefit, this is taken out, and, looking through, I see, quite close to me, the corpse of one of our brave fellows, blackened by exposure. Efforts will be made to recover some of these bodies as soon as opportunity allows. Looking further ahead through the pipe, I have a good view of the Turkish front line. A sentry is sitting beside the pipe, and at intervals he removes the sandbag from the mouth, carefully looking out for any activity on the part of the Turk. I prefer to look through a periscope and take it up once more. Not being used to them, I raise it too high, my arms appearing above the parapet. A thoughtful Tommy alongside of me gently pulls my arms down behind the cover of the sandbags. The Turkish sniper is always on the lookout for the careless, Who expose themselves even a few inches, and is often clever in getting a bull's eye at the first shot. However, one through the arm would be luck. What could be better than the pleasure of lunching at Ciro's with an arm in a sling from a wound? I take a careful survey of the Turkish line, running along a gentle rise in front of me, and after a while, I notice a shovel lifted over the parapet, and a spray of earth thrown over and this happens several times. A Turk at work, probably improving his fire step. As I go back into the front line, I notice that at intervals we have fixed into the sandbag parapet iron plates with little holes punctured in them, protected by a small shield hanging on a hinge like a shield to a keyhole. Through these holes, when necessary, our men place their rifles, firing with good protection to themselves. I am shown our catapults for throwing bombs, almost the same as the ancient weapons of Rome. Also trench mortars, funny squat cannons with short, wide, gaping mouths. Occasionally, during the tour, bullets come over. They zip over up here and ping with a long ring further back over the roads behind our line. Now and again they strike our parapet, sounding like the blow of a great brick thrown with a great force. The trenches are full of flies, hot and stuffy, with that ever sickly smell of the dead and chloride of lime, but fortunately quite dry and very clean, and the men are merry and keen and delighted to show round one who seldom enters a trench and is ignorant of the life spent there. Evening. It has been very quiet during the day, but a few shells came over to W. Beach. Most of them did not explode. AUGUST 17TH. IT IS A WONDERFULLY CLEAR DAY, AND WE CAN SEE THE ASIATIC SIDE AND THE PLAINS OF TROY IN VIVID DETAIL. SOME SIX-INCH SHELLS COME OVER FROM ASIA TO W. BEACH THIS MORNING, AND AFTER LUNCH WE RECEIVE A FEW MORE, ONE VERY CLOSE TO OUR BIVOUAC, FALLING INTO THE SEA AND THROWING UP A LARGE waterspout. AUGUST 18TH. SO FAR IT HAS BEEN A VERY QUIET MORNING, NOT A SINGLE SHELL ON THE BEACH. THE OTHER DAY ONE OF OUR MACHINES DROPPED BOMBS ON A TURKISH TRANSPORT IN THE SEA OF MARMORA, SINKING HER. ONE OF OUR TRANSPORTS, ON THE WAY TO SUVLA, HAS BEEN SUNK, AND NEARLY A THOUSAND LIVES LOST. RUMOR NOW WHISPERS THAT THE SUVLA BAY LANDING HAS NOT BEEN AS SUCCESSFUL AS WAS AT FIRST THOUGHT. BUT WE learn THAT MANY MORE TROOPS ARE BEING LANDED. WE ARE STILL HOPING FOR VICTORY, WHICH SO FAR WE HAVE NOT TASTED. Dismal news reaches us from Suvla. A naval officer just returning from there informs us that we are digging in hard a line at the foot of the hills, and that the Turks are also doing likewise. Also, we must now face a winter campaign. No comment is necessary as to our feelings. We are shelled a little at night, but are too tired and bored to bother, and so go to sleep. I am still sleeping in a tent with Phillips, and if a shell does hit us clean while we are asleep, it is of no consequence, for then we shan't wake up the next morning with another awful day before us to live. August 19th. Before breakfast this morning I ride up the west coast road, my mount being fresh and lively, enjoying to the full the canter I give him up to artillery road, the ride along that road beats so far any ride I have ever had for enjoyment. The soft going, though it may be rather dusty. The view, the sea on the left, Imbros shrouded at her feet by blue-gray mist. The sound of the waves gently lapping the shore on the road below. The view in front of stately and formidable Achibaba, and of the mountains of Asia, with now and again a glimpse of the blue waters of the Dardanelles on the right. All is quiet. I might be miles from war, and yet I am in the center of war on a large scale, concentrated in an area that would be lost on Salisbury Plain. To obtain an idea of on how large a scale the war on this little tip of land is, as far as fighting is concerned, one has only to compare our casualties here up to now with those of the South African War and now we have Suvla Bay, where six divisions are on shore. Passing the road leading down to Gully Beach, my horse shies badly as two sixty-pounders in action on the cliff overlooking the beach fire over our heads. These sixty-pounders have moved forward from their original position on the cliff by the beach, much to our satisfaction, for they were too near our bivouac, and a sixty-pounder is a noisy toy." I ride down from Artillery Road and, turning to the right, ride up the foot of the beautiful gully, now more honeycombed than ever with dugouts and terraces and flights of steps. Leaving my horse at a small camp near Bruce's Ravine, named after the gallant colonel of the Gurkhas, who sailed on the same hospital ship in which I went to Alexandria in July, because of the gallant and victorious fight the Gurkhas made for the capture of Gurkha Bluff in the early days, I walk up this ravine, used as a mule track, to the trenches up on the high ground on the left of the gully, forming the extreme left of our line, and after a short walk through a series of trenches forming our support line, I turn down a communication trench, which after a while brings me out onto a long and wide terrace overlooking Y Beach. Y Beach was the scene of a terrible fight between the king's own Scottish borderers. And the enemy on april twenty fifth, in which the king's own scottish borderers were successful in effecting a landing only to evacuate a day later. But how they landed there at all is a feat to be marvelled at, for the beach can hardly be called a beach. It is a narrow ravine widening slightly at the water's edge to a width of not more than a hundred yards and flanked by steep, almost precipitous gorse-covered slopes to a height of a hundred and fifty feet troops attempting to land on such a beach from small open boats could not be expected to even reach the shore yet by the night these scotsmen had conquered the heights and penetrated inshore. but their position was too precarious and it was a wise move to order them to evacuate at the end of the terrace on the north side of the top of the ravine my brigade headquarters is comfortably dug in and it is a pleasure sitting there, talking with such a picturesque view to enjoy from the position. It is far the prettiest sight brigade has had up to now for their headquarters, and also convenient, for they are situated but a few hundred yards behind the front line. As I am about to take my leave, four shrapnel shells come over from a Turkish battery on our extreme left, which burst low on the opposite slopes of the ravine, with the trenches of two regiments in reserve for a target. They are followed steadily by several salvos, one or two of the shells bursting in the air near our headquarters, and one in particular throwing a few bullets onto the ground at my feet as I stand at the door of the General's mess. The General invites me to step inside, saying, unless you want to get shot, and gives me a topping breakfast of scrambled eggs on toast. After breakfast I go back with Matthias and Arnold to Gully Beach, and see 86th Brigade headquarters and Sinclair Thompson, and then ride with Arnold to W. Beach. Matthias and Arnold come to lunch, as a parcel had arrived, and we enjoy the luxuries thereof. After lunch I receive orders to go with 88th Brigade and 86th Brigade to the new landing, way also under orders to go. So... After nearly four months of hanging on to this tip of the peninsula, the poor old twenty ninth division is to leave and try its luck at the new landing, and Achi Baba still remains impregnable. I look forward to the move with mixed feelings relief at getting away from this end, and new feelings at the prospect of being more heavily shelled than we ever were here. However, perhaps the move may be a successful one, and the end of the campaign in this area nearer than we think. At 9 p.m. I go down to W. Beach and make inquiries. As usual, nobody knows anything, and all is confusion. The piers are very congested, with the baggage being shipped onto lighters, which are then towed out to trawlers. All such work, of course, has to be done after dark. At 12, after making exhaustive inquiries and with no result way and i walk over to v beach at the fort on the left of v beach looking shorewards we find that a lot of lancashire and munster fusiliers are taking shelter as the turks had been shelling the beach we lie down just outside the fort on the stone floor and try to get some sleep a perfect night and as i look up at the stars i wonder what it was like here a year ago when war had not devastated this land. August 20th. At one thirty a.m. we get up and go down to the River Clyde. The River Clyde is now supporting a very fine pier that the French have constructed. The French are excellent people at organization. After waiting some time, a military landing officer tells me that the 88th are not going till the following night. And so I say good night to Wey, who is going off with the 86th, and proceed to walk back the mile and a half to W Beach. I take the wrong turning, inquire the way of a French soldier who puts me wrong again, and I find myself in a perfect maze of French dugouts. Once in the maze, I have an awful job to get out, and after stumbling and falling about for some time, manage to find the road feeling very tired, I stumble along in and out of the shell holes, it being very dark, and at last I arrive at W. Beach. I find Major Blackburn, Camp Commandant, still at work in his office in a dugout on the side of the cliff, and he very kindly revives me with a whiskey. It is now 3.30 a.m., and after chatting with him, he, giving a most dismal and chilling outlook of Suvla Bay, twenty thousand casualties and only just hanging on to the lowland, I go back to the tent, I have no bed, my kit having gone on. I lie down like a dog and sleep soundly till five o'clock, when I am awakened by the cold. I go out to try to get warm and see the sunrise. The breath of the coming winter seems to be in the air. Phew! In winter we shall be washed off by rain, not driven off by the Turks. I sleep again, and then have breakfast with Phillips. Heavy artillery duels all day, and the gully people get it badly, twelve men wounded. I rest during the day, as I shall be up all night again tonight. I wonder how many other people are keeping diaries on Gallipoli besides me. It would be interesting for me to read them, for they must all be told from far different points of view. The impression the Gallipoli campaign has on the minds of the men in the trenches, by far the most important men in the machine of the Dardanelles army, must be widely foreign to the impression made on the mind, for instance, of a lighterman. The man in the trenches, probably, if he has been to France, and many here have, sees no great difference from life in the trenches in the Ypres salient. An Army Service Corps baker views life here through quite differently colored spectacles from the Army Service Corps driver, the Army Service Corps driver from the signal operator, the officer in the observation balloon from the military officer of a regiment, the platoon commander from the military landing officer, the aviator from the gunner officer, the commander of a submarine from the veterinary officer, and yet each respective outlook on life to each officer or man is one of far more vital and of greater importance than all the views opinions thoughts and actions of any of his comrades or neighbors or any newspaper or public opinion it is for him his destiny the carrying out of orders given to his particular self though of seemingly little importance in comparison to the working of the large army machine is to him, perhaps, a matter of life or death. Death or grievous wounds may prevent him carrying out an order. In that event, he will be excused. But, while alive and effective, he must carry out that order to the letter. The position that destiny has placed him in, as part of the huge machine, controls his thoughts, actions, character, and outlook on life. His daily work may bring him in a constant danger of sudden death, and he naturally views his life from the point of view of the probability of leaving it suddenly, and possibly in an awful manner. That constant thought usually makes a man braver than we would expect, for his will forces him to carry out to the letter his orders and rules his mind, which is fully aware of the danger he incurs in doing so. As well as making him braver, the thought decides his will to make the most of the pleasures of life that may pass his way, and as a result he is usually to be found of a cheery, optimistic nature, easily pleased and hard to depress. For optimists, go to the front-line trenches or the Navy, and for pessimists, go to overworked administrative officers. If it were possible for all ranks, from officer commanding to private, in an army fighting in any certain campaign, to keep an accurate diary of all they do and see, then there could be published a perfectly true record of the development and history of that campaign. So it is not possible, and never will be, for the truth of all happenings in that campaign to be known, and it never will be in any campaign. Hundreds of deeds, gallant, tragic cowardly and foolish occur which are never and can never be recorded when the daily press armchair critics in clubs etc criticize any statesman or army staff they are simply talking hot air for how is it possible for them to judge when their source of information is as unreliable as a w beach rumor so why waste words much better go and do something useful or shut up and go and hide. War is like a big game. This war we must win or we shall lose. If we lose, it is on too huge a scale to be through any man's fault. It will be destiny. At nine thirty p.m., I walk over to V beach again and find much more order than last night. Our brigade is moving off systematically from the pier alongside the River Clyde. I embark with the Essex onto a small trawler. Algy Wood is with me. We are a merry party. We cast off and steam out to a paddle boat, which we come alongside and make fast to ship. We are packed very closely together. The skipper makes all the Tommies laugh by shouting through a megaphone in a deep naval drawl. To a small tug in the offing. Finished with you, Jesse! And off we steam north for our unknown fate at Suvla Bay. Tommy expresses his feelings by the remark, I don't know where I am going to, but I shall be glad when I get there. So shall I. I take a farewell glance at the River Clyde and Sed-el-bar and express the prayer that I shall not see either again during this war, and lie down on deck to sleep. End of section 14